the goals of the treatment of schizophrenia have changed from merely managing symptoms to improving real-world functioning. How can we begin to assess and predict this? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Philip Harvey. Dr. Harvey is professor of psychiatry at Emory University School of Medicine. His research has focused for years on cognition, and he's written extensively on aging and schizophrenia, functional impairments in the illness, the cognitive effects of typical and atypical antipsychotics, as well as studying the effects of cognitive enhancing agents in various conditions, including schizophrenia, dementia, and traumatic brain injury. Welcome to ReachMD, Dr. Harvey. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. Dr. Harvey, what's prompted this change in perspective from what used to be just symptom management to now managing functioning? I think there's been an increasing realization that people with schizophrenia, even when you make their psychotic symptoms go away temporarily with antipsychotic medications, aren't actually better. Better meaning functioning like the rest of the people in the population, having a job, being able to pay their own rent, having an active social life, and having contact with other people. And it's been understood over the last few years that resolution of psychotic symptoms may be a prerequisite for that kind of functioning, but certainly does not ensure it. Are these the kinds of problems that you see in functionality in schizophrenics, or are there others? Well, the kind of functioning problems we see in schizophrenia generally hit those big three domains of residential status, productive activities, and social outcomes. Now, you know, in thinking about the show, many of our listeners, as you know, are primary care doctors, and their experience directly with schizophrenia is probably back from medical school or maybe early training when we only had old medicines, Thorazine and Haloperidol, etc. Can you fill them in on what's happened in the last 20 years? Well, one of the things that's happened in terms of the treatment of psychotic symptoms has been that a new class of antipsychotic medications has been introduced. These are referred to as atypical antipsychotic medications in contrast to typical medications, which are the older ones. The typicality of a medication simply means that in order to produce a therapeutic effect, you also need to produce extrapyramidal symptoms. With atypical antipsychotics, the therapeutic window for treating the people the dose that you use is not a dose that necessarily promotes EPS, which was the hallmark sign of what was considered an effective lower dose with the older medication. So things have changed quite a bit. Yes. And in fact, some of the atypical medications, a clozapine in particular, seems to work in patients who don't respond to any other typical or atypical antipsychotics. Now, Dr. Harvey, are there some psychotic symptoms which have a stronger association with poor functioning? Actually, it's really interesting because the psychotic symptoms that we see in schizophrenia don't correlate at all with functioning. Uh, it may seem to be a big surprise that hallucinations and delusions don't relate to your ability to function in the world. <laughs> Unless you look in Washington, right? Yes, that's true. That's true. <laughs> then it but one, be of, so but one of the things that happens is that psychotic symptoms come and go, just like politicians. <laughs> and functional disability tends to be persistent over time. So what does the poor functioning relate to? It relates to cognitive impairment. People with schizophrenia have fairly striking abnormalities in cognition. And in many other illnesses where cognitive impairments predominate, you see functional disability as well. Now, much of your work recently has looked at testing this real-world functioning. Tell us about how you do that. Well, one of the things that's really important to keep in mind is you need to separate out what people can do and what they actually do. 
In other words, people can be capable of doing a variety of things that they don't actually do in the real world. Just like the golfer who hits a great shot when they're on the practice range but can't hit the ball at all when they're on the course, many people with schizophrenia have problems in the ability to exercise skills that they actually have. Certain environmental factors interfere, and actually the way our insurance and disability system is set up really does interfere with real-world functioning. So how do you test it? Well, one of the things we do is we try to clearly separate out the potential that a person has from what they actually do. So you can measure potential directly. If you want to find out if someone can manage their finances, make emergency phone calls, communicate with others, you could ask them how they're doing, or you could have them actually do it in front of you. And that's what we do. We use performance-based measures of a variety of aspects of everyday outcome to measure the patient's potential to perform these skills in an optimum situation. So give us an example of one of those you mentioned. How do you actually do it in the lab? Well, one of the things we use is a test that was developed by my colleague, Bob Heaton, at UCSD Medical Center. It's called Advanced Finances. And what you do is you give a person a bunch of checks that are payable to them, some bills, a check register, and you tell them to deposit the checks in their account by filling out the deposit slips, write checks to pay the bills, maintain a running balance, and leave $100 at the end to pay off your credit card bill when you're done paying your other bills off. So we ask people to plan and execute financial management skills that are within the realm of what healthy people have to do when they're managing their independent life. And then how do you quantify it? Well, we have a scoring system when we rate the capabilities that the patients have. Can they accurately address the envelopes? Do they get the amount on the right line and their signature on the right line? And we have a reliable scoring system that we use. These things are not that different than strategies that have been used for years to measure functional decline that you see in older people who have trouble with their activities of daily living, maybe because they're developing Alzheimer's disease or mild cognitive impairment. So this is a strategy that's been around for a while. And something that occupational therapists, I, I assume, know how to do as well? Absolutely. In fact, we have borrowed from occupational therapists and vocational rehabilitation to focus on these assessments because voc rehab people for years have known that you need to train the skills in order to get people to function again. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunch, your host, and with me today is Dr. Philip Harvey, professor of psychiatry at Emory. We're discussing assessing the functional capacity of patients with schizophrenia. Uh, Dr. Harvey, you've looked at this problem extensively. What have you found so far in your research? Well, what we find is that there's a very strong correlation between cognitive disability, problems in attention, memory, and problem solving, and difficulties in the ability to perform skills that are important for the real world. In other words, people who have problems with concentration, memory, or their speed of processing have a difficult time engaging in simulated social interactions, engaging in communication and financial management, and also perform more poorly on tests of vocational potential. 
What we found, though, is that there is a less strong correlation between what you can do socially, vocationally, and residentially, and what you actually do. But thinking back to our original discussion about medications, the antipsychotics don't uh, treat those problems, right? They don't help with concentration or memory, and if anything, they may slow speed of processing. Well, it's remarkable how little effect antipsychotic medications have on these critically important elements of functional outcome. The newer antipsychotics probably don't slow you down as much as the older ones did, and even those didn't have as much of an effect on people with schizophrenia as you might expect, largely because they start out fairly impaired to start with. But these antipsychotics that reduce psychosis, as well as antihypertensives reduce high blood pressure, just don't seem to improve the real-world outcome of people with schizophrenia. Interesting. You know, I just saw last week, actually, that in the top 10 lists of medicines for 2007, according to dollars spent in this country, two out of the top 10 are actually antipsychotics. Billions and billions and billions of dollars we spend on these medicines, you know, maybe we should be putting our money elsewhere. Well, actually, there are a lot of things these medicines do. Uh, these medicines are associated with reduction in violent behavior and belligerence. These medicines are also associated with being able to treat depressive symptoms that don't respond to antidepressant treatment. Medications are indicated for the treatment of treatment-resistant depression that are antipsychotics. And similarly, these medications have been shown to be effective as monotherapy in treating acute manic episodes. So it is important to keep in mind that these medications do reduce symptomatology, which has an impact on many aspects of the people's lives with schizophrenia. If you've got someone who is psychotic or having a manic episode, they're a very bad candidate to be in a rehabilitation program. So what's next? What's the next phase of your research? Well, what we're interested in doing is partnering with pharmaceutical companies and with the National Institute of Mental Health to identify pharmaceutical compounds and cognitive remediation strategies that reduce cognitive impairment with the idea of seeing if these treatments reduce cognitive abnormalities as well as our direct measurements of disability. We've already published a paper showing that antipsychotic treatment actually has a direct impact on social competence in people with schizophrenia, even though it may not have an immediate impact on their social outcomes, like having friends or getting married or something like that. So looking at perhaps some of the medicines that we use to treat Alzheimer's disease, for example? Well, actually, they've been looked at, and they don't seem to work. The medicines that treat Alzheimer's disease are aimed at the cholinergic system, and the impairment in schizophrenia doesn't seem to be related to that. There are some medicines that are under experimental consideration for treating Alzheimer's disease that target the nicotinic subtype of the cholinergic system, and they may be interesting for treating the cognitive impairments in people with schizophrenia, too. And, of course, can't talk about nicotinic receptors without talking about nicotine, and it does seem like so many of our schizophrenic patients do smoke. In fact, there's a really intrinsic relationship between smoking and schizophrenia. There are alterations in the genes that control the receptor density the nicotinic receptor in the cortex, and the proportion of people with schizophrenia who smoke at the time of their first episode is higher than the population as a whole. Suggesting this is not something that's a consequence of schizophrenia, but an intrinsic part of the vulnerability process. What about caffeine? Seems like with their cigarettes also comes a cup of coffee. Well, that's true, but the effect of caffeine appears to be much more generalized, much less cortical in nature than the effect of nicotine. 
And the rate of coffee consumption on the part of people with schizophrenia doesn't stand outside the population averages, whereas actually the majority of cigarettes smoked in America right now are smoked by people with severe mental illness. Huh. I didn't know that. (laughs) Well, I think it's because the prevalence is high. There are a lot of people with severe mental illness, and they are more likely to smoke more cigarettes than people without mental illness, even when they do smoke. So it's not only that they're smoking, they're heavier smokers as well. They're much more efficient smokers as well. They extract much more nicotine from each cigarette. And it's proven to be much more difficult for people with severe mental illness who are smokers to stop smoking. Well, thank you so much for being on our show today. Oh, you're welcome. We've been discussing evaluating functional ability in schizophrenics with our guest today, Emory Professor Dr. Philip Harvey. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. To listen to our on-demand library, come visit us at ReachMD.com. If you register with the promo code RADIO, you can receive six months of free streaming for your office or home. Now, if you have comments or questions, please feel free to call us at 888-MD-XM-157. Thank you for listening. 